Today's show is brought to you by IBM. Technology today has never been smarter, but smart only matters when you put it to good use. Together, we can build a smarter future for all of us. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash smart. Today's show is brought to you by Facebook Inside Feed, and here is my colleague Nishat Kurwa to tell you all about that. Over the past year, Facebook has been no stranger to the conversation happening around fake news. Get an inside look at what the company's doing to fight against misinformation with Facebook's new short film, Facing Facts. Watch at InsideFeed.com. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today is a special day. I'm not recording this in New York. I'm at the 2018 Code Conference in California. It's awesome here. If you're not here, good news. You're going to hear a lot of this conference coming to you in this podcast feed in the near future. Today, for instance, you're going to hear from a conversation I just had with Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg and Facebook CTO Mike Schrepfer. It's me and Kara Swisher talking with them. Before we start that, my standard ask, if you like this show, tell someone else about it. Thank you. Okay, in a second, Cheryl Sandberg and Mike Schrepfer, we had a lot to talk about. Um, we probably didn't get to everything because we only had about 35 minutes, but we had a lot of conversations about Facebook's role in everything, how much responsibility they're taking for it. Also a short conversation about VR, why they're doing that. It's a wide-ranging conversation. Kara and I did our best to elicit a real uh, sort of answer from Cheryl and Mike about some stuff. Um, I think we did a pretty good job. You can be the judge of that. So that is coming in one more second. P.S. If you like this stuff, good news. Uh, more interviews with people like 21st Century Fox boss James Murdoch, AT&T boss Randall Stevenson, and Spotify boss Daniel Eck are all coming your way on this very feed. Many bosses coming to you for free. Okay, here's the interview. Enjoy. Uh, I don't think we have to say much. Facebook has been in the news. You may have heard them, seen them everywhere. Let's bring them up. Let's bring them up. Cheryl Sandberg, CEO of Facebook, and Mike Schrepfer, CTO of Facebook. Hey. Can I get a hug Put you over there. Here? Yep. Thank you. Spot. Yes, we are, indeed. We are between all of you and a late dinner. No, no, no. We have lots to say. Dinner's on time. <laughs> we have lots to talk about. Thank you for coming, first of all. Thank this you for having us. Obviously, news filled year for you all. Um, I, I told Cheryl this is going to be a tougher interview than usual. I think bring it on. Bring all it right. on. Excellent. We're ready. So, why wasn't anybody fired at Facebook over the situation with Cambridge Analytica? <laughs> You should start with easy questions. No, no, I think I'll start there. No, and in three yeah. parts. Why wasn't anyone fired? Who should have been fired? And, and that's enough. Okay, well, we'll do the third okay. part. All right. Okay, So Mark has said very clearly on Cambridge Analytica that he designed the platform and he designed the policies and he holds himself responsible. The controls in the company on this are under me. I hold myself responsible for the ones we didn't have. And look, Shrep and I are here. We run the company. We do fire people at Facebook. We don't trot them out and make examples of them. It's not how we are because we want a culture of responsibility atop and we take it. And the thing for us, and I think what underlies your question is, do we know that we were late, not just on the data for Cambridge Analytica, but on fake news, on you know, misinformation, on elections? And what are we doing about it? And we definitely know we're late. We have said we're sorry, but sorry is not the point. No, What's the, but the your point ads are lovely, action. but go ahead. Well, thank you. Yeah, okay. But the point is the action we're taking. And on all of these fronts, we're really thinking about the responsibility we take in a very different way. 
when you think about the history of Facebook and you've been following us and part of it for a long time, you know, for the last 10, 12 years, we've been really focused on social experiences and building those and enabling those, what the world would look like if people knew it was your birthday. I was just in Houston. People found people and saved people through Harvey because they were posting publicly on mm -hmm. Facebook. Those good use cases. But I don't think we were focused enough on the bad. And when you have humanity on a platform, you get the beauty and you get the ugliness. Mm -hmm. And where we are now is really understanding the responsibility we have to more proactively see the problems and prevent them. So, Girl, oh, go, ahead, go ahead. I'm gonna play kind of good cop. Yeah. Um, That's hard with Carol. Yeah, I know. She's such a good cop. Um, isn't, the, isn't the problem not that someone screwed up, but that you've built this architecture that's fundamentally open to, whether it's Cambridge Analytica or the election stuff, or any of the problems that have been surfacing the last couple of years, where it's built for scale, it's built, it's software, it's um, built for sort of like minimal oversight, and you want the humans to sort of populate it with, with content and use it. Um, automated ad systems. It seems like James Murdoch referred to it as this giant attack surface that you built this thing. It's actually working the way sort of you initially thought it was going to work. You just didn't realize what you built. Yeah, Mike, I, I don't know. You, that, one of you can start with it. Go well, ahead. I don't know. I was going to jump. I mean, I, I do think what you raise is, is a real fundamental tension between sort of giving tools that are easy for people to have free expression and then for keeping people safe. Because yes, if you you know really want to lock everything down, you censor everything and, and have human reviewers read every single post someone puts on there. But I don't think that's what people actually want. Um, and what we're trying to balance is, is like easy tools for you to be able to post, share photos, links, whatever you want with anyone you want. But to make sure the, the really bad stuff, the abuses, hate speech, bullying, you know, economic abuses, or this, this election interference, to get that stuff off the platform while that, not still taking free speech. Is that doable with, with something that's fundamentally going to be built from software and automation that reaches 2 billion people around the world? Well, we do not think it's perfectly. A, not, I mean, this is, the, this is what we're in right now, is trying to, to do this really well. And I think it's a combination of humans and technology to, to make this work. And to figure out in, you know, in each society, in each culture, Where's the line between political speech and, and hate speech? Um, and how do we make sure that we get things that work for everyone all across the world at sort of un, unprecedented scale? Let's go back a little bit further. When you, you just said that we didn't know, we didn't see the negative parts that people, I, I, I don't know if you met human beings, but I know quite a few bad ones. Um, but the idea is, what is in your culture that didn't see that? Like you're saying, you know, I know Mark, you apologized, the ads, it seems like everybody's doing an apology ad, but you, what is it in the culture? Because I can, I can remember a meeting where when Facebook Live happened, where I actually, when I was shown it, I said, well, what are you gonna do about when someone murders someone or beat, commits suicide or beats someone up? And the, I think the project manager was like, Carrie, you're so negative. I'm like, what? Like, I'm sorry. Like, it, it, humanity is really awful in many ways. I think, I think that is part of the tension and Live's a good example. So when Live happened, there was a lot of good. It really catchy in terms of sharing. People really enjoyed the experience. But there were things that were wrong. And we actually, on that one, I think moved very quickly. We got down to human review of anything live within minutes, which is actually hard to do operationally, but we got there. And that was really important. And there have been things that were taken down of live right away. There have also been things that have happened in live that we were able to really intervene and help people. So with all of it, I think it goes to the point you were making, which is a very good point. We built an open platform. It is a platform where so many people come on and share. They are going to do the good and they are going to do the bad. And it's not that we're ever going to prevent all of it. We will never say that. But we can get better. We can be more transparent. We can put a lot more resources and a lot more thought, both technology and automate, technology, automation, and people. 
We're also really working on being more transparent that we think is a huge part of the answer. So content policy. Free expression is fundamental to Facebook. It's a very deep value for us. But so is a safe community. And as Shrep was saying, those values really rub against each other. We've published our community standards, but now we went ahead and published the internal guidelines that people use to judge because what is free expression for one person is hate for another. We worked with over 100 experts around the world. We published those. We had a lot of good feedback, and we're going to keep iterating. We also published our results. So we have out there now how many pieces of you know, 1.3 billion fake accounts taken down in six months. ISIS and Al-Qaeda content, we're getting 99% of it before it's reported. Sexual content, we're getting 96%. Hate speech, 38% before it's reported. So we can see where are the areas we need to invest. And by being open about that, we think we can get people to help us because the overall are plan, right, is near term, we're going to hire a lot of people. Mark said we're going to hire so many people to, to audit our political ads, we're going to lose money on political ads this cycle. Um, but X number of years out from now, the, the software will be good enough that we're going to solve most of this. You guys believe sort of top down that, that eventually you can solve the software problem with another software problem? I mean, you can see this in the numbers that Cheryl just talked about, because if we published you know, numbers of, of uh, for example, you know, objectionable content, nudity and pornography, identified by people first and reported to us versus identified by automated systems several years ago, you know, it would have been sort of 0%, you know, 100%, all you know, generally reported by people. And now it's 96% automated by you know, AI systems. And you're seeing this again it's, with violence, the number is 86. With hate speech, it's 38%. Because it's harder, it's more nuanced, it's more on the frontier of, of development. But it's solvable. But we've seen years, this is, and this goes back many, many years of, of development to make these systems work. And we see quarter over quarter steady progress. I'm, you know, as a technologist, I was very worried about some of the, these harder problems. We've made more progress in the last six months than I thought was actually possible. But so that gives me a lot of optimism to do this from a technology perspective over time. Sorry, sir. But I think one of the things people worry about is, do we think we can automate everything? Do we think we can be neutral? Do we? No. 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 We want to get things when they're loaded. So the difference between something being loaded, a technology pulling it down before anyone sees it, that's much better. And that's what we're able to do with ISIS and Al-Qaeda content. We're able to do that with more with photos and adult sexual content. Hate speech is language more nuanced. So the automation which helps us get it down before it's seen, that's great. But there are humans building the technology, and we understand that. Mm -hmm. And there are humans making the decisions on the rules. And I think at every stage, there's going to have to be some technology and some human review. Let's go back to how it happened, because I, I don't think that was answered in the congressional hearing. <coughs> they seem riveted by your terms of service and what your actual business model was. That was an impressive display of <laughs> intelligence by our politicians. Um, and it's so funny. You should run. You I, could be in Congress. Oh, I would do. And then you could. Yeah. They could, anyway. Do those We'll hearings. get into that. We'll get into that in a second. Um, they, when they were asking these questions, one of the things they didn't ask is exactly what happened. Like, exactly how did this occur? And I'm really interested in, and one of the things Mark said a lot was, we take a broader responsibility now. Why didn't you take a broader responsibility before? What is in the culture that creates that? And I don't think it's a malevolence. I don't. I'm not accusing you of that. I think what is it as part of the Facebook culture that didn't see this coming in, in terms? And walk through Cambridge Analytica, for example. Do you want, do you want to go through the timeline? Do you want to talk timeline. about Timeline, yes. Let's talk about the actual time. Because I have not, I've heard some versions of it. But I remember being at the 2008 event where you opened up the platform. You needed to bring people in. You needed subscribers. You created this open thing. You handed out the data. What did you think was going to, what happened there? So walk through that. And I mean, if you go all the way back to, I think it's 2007, 2008, when the platform first launched, you know, the, the idea was 
hey, people you know, are using the service Facebook. They want to take their data with them to a third-party <laughs> app to make it social, to enhance it. And you know, over the years, there was a lot of pressure to say, hey, you know, don't, don't be a wall garden. Let people take their data and easily bring it to another application. In the you early also needed to give it to them to come on the platform. You needed some sort of candy to attract all these app developers in, correct? Or something to get them to use. Well, they wanted to build these great, I mean, right. many of these are name brand companies now. And, right. and they, you know, like many people thought that apps are better with your friends and, and right. with, with the social data. In the early years, it was a lot, you know, the, the idea, and I think this gets back to your optimism versus pessimism for these things. And I think for the entrepreneurs in the audience, you'll know that as an entrepreneur, you get told no and your idea is stupid, you know, nine times out of 10 during the day. And so you have to some degree take this optimistic attitude to bring something new into the world, whether it's a new product, a new company, or, or a new feature in a product. And so I think you start there when you're building these things. And for the platform, what we spent a lot of time on was, look, people are smart. They're ultimately using a third-party app. So whatever Facebook data they take, they're also putting new data into that app. So they have to trust that app and, and understand what it is. Our job is to kind of give them the notice on what's happening. So we built these. I remember spending iteration after iteration on how exactly do we design this dialogue to make it super clear exactly what data you're getting from Facebook and bringing to this third-party app. Because that if, if the customer knows what's happening, they can make informed decisions. And that was really the, the focus of the platform in the early years. You know, as the platform got bigger and things scaled, this is when in 2014 we, we said, look, we want to kind of restrict access to these things. We want to do more proactive review of, of applications so all new apps had to get, get reviewed by our staff. Um, and then to get to your specific question about you know, the, the timeline that happened here, you know, this app was built around that time frame. Um, and then we heard in December of 2015 via media reports that you know, an app developer had basically gotten Facebook data as people installed it and then resold it to, to a third party. Right. Why via media reports? You're super smart people, I'm pretty certain. So where does it break down there that you didn't know what was going on? Well, the problem is we can't, you know, observe the actual data transfer that happens there, right? So we don't, you know, I don't actually even know physically how the data went from one to the other. There isn't a channel that we have some sort of control over. Again, as a consumer, you're ultimately trusting a third party with your data, whatever data you brought from Facebook, whatever data, I mean, you're taking these personality quizzes, you know, and you're inputting new data in there. That's a relationship with that developer that you have to trust that they'll be responsible with the data they're using, whether it's on Facebook or some app you downloaded from an app store. Um, and so we didn't observe that until we heard about it through third-party reports. And that's when kind of the, the events went into motion where we... Oh, that's 2015. Yeah. And so the first thing, we you know, immediately disabled the app from the platform so it couldn't, couldn't have further access. You know, went to, the goal was to figure out, look, who, who had this data? How do we make sure that that data is deleted um, and is safe? And that's what kind of happened in that time frame. And then the reason this has come up this year again in 2018 is, you know, subsequent reports that, hey, despite kind of... Uh, agreements to the fact that they had deleted the data, they may may not have. Um, and that's when sort of we resurfaced and looked through all of these things. We had made many platform changes, as I said, in 2014, which made a lot of this not possible because you could no longer pull friends' data. And that's when we've really just taken this, this much sharper, more pessimistic view on everything in the company. I mean, it's the biggest cultural shift I've ever seen in the 10 years I've been there, which is just, you know, top to bottom, you know, not just what are all the great things that can happen, but what are all the ways people can abuse this? What are all the theoretical ways that this could happen? How do we make product changes? How do we make policy changes? How do we you know, invest our resources differently, both in security and content review and in product development you guys, um, to do you that? Guys and that's like a process that's ongoing, right? I mean, we've been working on this since then. Hey, it's Peter. I'm back at the Code Conference. I'm cutting back in to thank some of the sponsors who bring this show to you for free. We're back with Sheryl Sandberg and Wright Schripfer after this. 
Today's show is brought to you by Simply Safe. You know it's important to protect your home with a home security system, but what about your privacy? How could you protect your home and your privacy? Simply Safe can do that for you. They obsess over details like no one else. Here's an example. Simply Safe has a camera you can control from your phone, but they want to protect your home and your privacy. So, they added a privacy shutter for your camera. Smart, right? The result is an effective home security camera with a thin, lightweight aluminum privacy shutter that will work every time. It's that kind of attention to detail that sets Simply Safe apart. Simply Safe isn't just home security, it's home security done right. Check out Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com slash media. That's simplysafe, S-I-M-P-L-I, safe.com slash media to learn more about Simply Safe today. Simplysafe.com slash media. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. We live in a world that's creating AI-enabled everything, a world with more IoT devices than people. Today, technology has never been smarter. But smart only matters when you put it to work where it matters. When we put smart to work, we can help save species, increase crop yields, and make progress, not just for a few of us, for all of us. So let's get to it. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart. You've grown at an enormous rate. It's not by accident. You've, you've created systems to help you grow, right? There's growth hacking is a term. Looking back, do you wish that you had grown more slowly or reined in growth or been more thoughtful about the ways you're growing and how much of that's attributable to the problems you have today? I mean, I, I do. Sorry, I don't. Okay. Well, let's do show Let's go to No, I mean, looking back, we definitely wish we had put more controls in place. So, you know, we got legal certification that Cambridge Analytica didn't have the data. We didn't audit them. And now we're waiting for the government. We still want to. We're going to. You know, we wish we had taken more firm steps. I think so. You had those media reports. Why didn't you? What? Well, we did go back and right. got. They, and they, they said they didn't. But they, they legally didn't. certified they had deleted the data. We did not go and audit. Why? Not? Which is what we're doing now. Well, it always looks obvious in hindsight. We absolutely right. should have. But to your question, I think we can grow and we can continue to grow, but we can also have controls in place. And, you know, those exist in long things. You know, right, now that you're at 2 billion people, Mark says we're gonna, we're gonna slow down and, and we're being more thoughtful about it. And well, if you were cynical, <laughs> you might suggest it's easier to say this now than it was five or 10 years Absolutely. ago. Well, we always had some controls in place, but I don't think they were enough. So let's talk about data, because that's what we were talking about. We always had ways for people to control your data. You always could go in and choose to share your data with apps and you could always delete. Always there. What do we do now? We put it at the top of everyone's newsfeed, a very easy way. Here's all the apps you've connected to. Here's how you easily delete them. So I think we are really building on what we did before. The reason we were able to do that so quickly is all of those controls existed. We already had all of those controls. They were just harder to find for people, and we made them easier. So we are building on some of the controls we had before as we address some of these. And in some of the areas, we're going much further. It's also the case that threats change. So Let's talk about Harvard. Let's talk about the election. Mm -hmm. If you go back to 2016 and you think about what people were worried about in terms of nation states or election security, it was largely spamming, phishing, hacking. That's what people were worried about, a la the Sony emails, a la people hacking into systems. We were on a really good tech team. We were very protective on that, and we didn't have problems a lot of other platforms had. We didn't see coming, and I don't think we were alone in this, but it's on us. We didn't see coming a different kind of more insidious threat. But once we saw it, we did publish a white paper, we, we found the ads, and now we look forward to the next elections and we understand that threat. 
and we're taking very strong steps. But you, you all did know that you were going to make a lot of money. Well, we'll get to election yeah. spending in a minute, but Do you want to go ahead. The, the, on elections this is important. So we realized we didn't see the new threat coming. We were focused on the old threat. And now we understand that this is the kind of threat we have. We've taken very aggressive steps. There are elections going on all over the world as we speak and also coming up to the 2018. So fake accounts. We publicly reported this. We pulled down 1.3 billion in the last six months. Importantly, we pulled down fake accounts in Alabama, a Macedonian troll farm that we found that was trying to spread fake information in that election. We worked with the German government, pulled down fake accounts there, 30,000 in France that could have affected theirs. So we are showing that we are able to meet those threats. Probably not perfectly. You know, we can talk as much as you want about fake news, the really aggressive steps we're taking there. We're now set up with third-party fact-checkers with the AP in 50 states, looking at local and state news coming into our midterm election. And adds transparency, which I know Senator Warner's here. In that area, we're not waiting for legislation. He has a bill out there. We're supportive of that bill. But we've built the tool that that bill requires, and it's live so anyone can see any of the political issue ads. So the issue for us is we were slow. We are learning from our mistakes and taking action. We're also pretty humble about this. We understand that now we're protecting against this threat, but we have to have a different mindset of trying to see around the corner and the next threat. Were you surprised when you read the Mueller indictment and saw how few people they spent, they, they committed to that effort, how little money they had to spend to sort of fill Facebook with, with spam? It wasn't hard to do. It was not a giant yeah, I team. I mean, even the IRA ads, it was a small amount of money that went far, right. and that is why we have to take such strong steps. You know, and going back, a lot of the source of these things, if you think about fake news or elections, are fake accounts. So fake accounts are a big part of this thing here. The other thing is really disrupting the economic incentives. So a lot of fake news, a lot of it is politically motivated, but it's also economically motivated. People want to write outlandish headlines so that they can get clicks, so that they can make money. So we've taken very aggressive steps to go after the economic incentives, kick people out of ad networks, make sure they can't make money. And in all of this, we're going to have to solve today's problems, but also see ahead to the new ones. And I think one of the most important things we're doing are around transparency. For users? Transparency for people. So right now, it's actually pretty amazing if you go in and look at it. You can go in and see any ad running that has political or issue content directed at anyone. So the problem before is that if you weren't in the targeting group, you know, if I were targeting Peter, you couldn't see those ads. Mm -hmm. But now it's open and transparent for everyone. I think that is going to help people surface problems. I think people are going to find more things. And that will help us learn, pull them down, and build the tools to prevent those so in a more automated way. One of the things way. that you're talking about before, like there's, it looks like there's this before and after. Like, oh no, we, we got woke over here at Facebook or something. Um, I what, think there is yeah, all right, a before and after. I think that's appropriate. Right. But many people now have hostility towards Facebook and towards the tech industry uh, because of it. And many people, obviously people, fair or not, blame Facebook for the election or it's part in it. I think it's part of it. Um, and other things. What's the, from your perspective, the overall impact on the tech industry and the, um, and the country at large? How do you, what responsibility do you actually feel for what happened? For what happened in the election or just in general? In, in the election? Both. Look, the story of this election is going to be studied for a long time, and I don't think any of us have perfect answers. We're committed to helping to find those answers. I think we're unique. We've set up an election commission. We're giving them access to data, third parties. They are researchers. They are going to report publicly on what they find, and we're cooperating deeply, deep, deeply with that. I don't think we know. What about 
I mean, I think at the heart of this is, you're asking a question about responsibility. Yep. Do people have responsibility for the impact of the tools they build, yes. not just the existence of the tools? That's the drum I like to bet. Right, and, and I think that the, the days in tech of just, hey, I build these tools, you know, I'm not responsible for what happens with them, are sort of over. Like, you, you really need to have a deep responsibility to think about not just the good that these tools can have, but the bad, and what are all the things we can do to guard against it, and is, is the weight of these tools more in the positive than the negative? And I think that's, again, the big, cultural shift that I think a lot of people in tech have to, have to make to really think about this in advance, not just after the thing was created. And I think tech has long been, as an industry, pretty insular, and I think that's changing really? too. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, I think it's true. Yes, so that's changing too. So what's going right now with elections, we're working much more closely. Like some of the stuff we found in Germany, we found with the German government. We worked with the French government. We're working with local authorities around the world. I think, again, opening up our community standards, opening up to be more transparent, that enables people to find things and everyone to work together. Because a lot of these threats, we definitely take responsibility, but bad actors will go from platform to platform. And so the more we can cooperate, and our industry is doing a better and better job at that. When we find a bad actor, we are cooperating on that, and some of the legal changes have allowed that, so that we can pull them down, and so can everyone else. Here, and I think that's important. You mentioned the, the hearings um, and, and how comically sort of inept some of those questions seem to be. Um, and she it, said that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she'll run, and then she'll be up but there, even, and then even people understand. who were knowledgeable. I mean, the, the, if you ask two different people what's wrong with Facebook, they're going to give you different answers. Some are upset about the Russian ads, and some are upset about Diamond and Silk. Is that their names? Uh -huh. right? yeah. um, do you feel like the U.S. government and, and governments in general are really ready to engage in sort of a technical discussion about how to fix specific problems with Facebook or other parts of the tech business? Yeah, because I mean, a lot, a lot of people were like, oh, Mark did well, largely because he didn't sweat, apparently. But um, it was a ridiculous low bar. Um, but I, everyone was marked it well. I was like, no, they did badly. Like, it wasn't like, sure, it, he did better than they did, which was not very hard. But do, that's right. Are they able to understand and, and legislate well? Because some of the calls are for breaking you up, for example. So the question of regulation is a real one and a deep one. And, you know, it's not a question of people say, should Facebook be regulated? Should other companies, our industry be regulated? We are regulated. We're regulated on privacy. We're all regulated under GDPR, which Evan was Compared to about. other industries, I think most people. And it's not really a question of if there's more regulation. The question is what regulation. We're working closely with regulators around the world. Evan made a really important point that we feel deeply too, which is regulation often actually entrenches big companies. Yeah. So GDPR, I think we've done a very good job complying with. We've put up expensive to build systems and tools. You have and a lot of lawyers too. Yeah. yeah, but if you look at what we built, if we were a startup 10 years ago, we wouldn't be able to build all those settings and get them out, and we're making those available to the world. And so we're supportive of the right regulation that supports innovation, that is based on an understanding of the technology, and that is good for people. And there are some but of those But we spent examples. 20 minutes talking about what a complex system you've built and how difficult it was for you to figure out the problems and how you're going through it now. I mean, do you really imagine this is something where a bureaucrat, where legislators are going to be able to sort of keep up to date with what's going on with your various platforms? I mean, look, it's hard. There are examples, you know, there are funny examples from history, right? In the United Kingdom, when the car was invented, they passed a law saying that in order to operate a motor vehicle, you needed two people, one behind the wheel and one walking in front of the car with a red flag. That's pretty good. That will absolutely save lives, but you don't get the car. I mean, I'll ask the audience a question. Who here answers a call if there's no caller ID, if you don't see the number? Raise your hand if you will answer that call. A couple of you, I'm gonna call you. 
but most people, most people won't. When caller ID first came out, the state of California tried to pass a law against it because it was considered a violation of the caller's privacy that you would know where that is. So there are laws that are clearly either contemplated or passed that are bad ideas. There are also laws that are good ideas. I think people feel pretty good about GDPR and the controls it's given people. And so it's our job to work closely with regulators and legislators all over the world so that if there's more regulation and when there's more regulation, it's the right regulation. So let me ask that short first. Should Facebook be broken up? A lot of, it's suddenly Google and Facebook. Should they be broken up? Look, I think there's two things. One is, you know, is there competition in the market? And, and you know, if you look at many of the products we build, you know, if you want to share a video, YouTube's a better place to do it. If you want to have a public conversation, Twitter's a great place to do it. If you want to send a message, you know, there's Snapchat, there's WeChat, there's uh, Line, there's, there's any number of things out there that you can use iMessage to, to send those messages. So, you know, consumers are smart. They use the products that they want. You know, we're, uh, you know, a very small part of the overall ads business. So I think, you know, we're honest when we say we feel like we feel competition all the time. The other thing we are able to do in, in tackling a lot of these issues, they are the same across the platforms. You know, we're able to take the same technology we're using in Facebook to deal with, you know, objectionable content, hate speech and bullying, and immediately apply it to Instagram at a massive scale. And I think that's a really big benefit for, for where we are today. So your answer is no? No. Okay. What about you? No. For all the same reasons. Yeah. Can um, we say more? Yes, no. please. Yeah. I mean, look, this is a question fundamentally about competition and what are the benefits to consumers of being together. And I think it's what Tripp said. I'll share a specific example. You know, if you are doing child exploitative content, you know, WhatsApp's encrypted. But we know who you are from Facebook. We can take your account down on WhatsApp, too. So there are real benefits. And I think the real question is, do consumers have a choice? And I think along every product we have, there is a lot of choice out there. Do you think you'll be allowed to buy another WhatsApp or another Oculus or do major acquisitions like that now in the way that you've been able to in the past? Microsoft essentially was really restricted in terms of what they can buy. Google has is, is much more eyes on them um, because of their size. It seems like you guys are going to be there now as well. well Certainly as you get bigger, there's more scrutiny of acquisitions, and there should be. So we'll see. It really depends what it is. If it was in something that wasn't core, core to what we were doing in a new area, like Oculus was, I think it would probably be allowed. How are you getting along with your, your fellow tech giants? Um, you've, you've been competing with Google for a long time. Uh, Tim Cook recently told Kara some things that yeah. in the real world would be considered very mild sort of dinner conversation, but in Silicon Valley apparently it was considered a rough attack. Um, how, how are you getting along with Apple and Google? Yeah. What did you think of what he said? Or that one. Yeah, I mean, look, the conversation that you had with Tim and the stuff Apple's saying is important to them, right? They have a product they feel strongly about. Won't shock you to know that Mark and I strongly disagree with their characterization of our product. You know, we're proud of the business model we built. We have an ad-supported business that allows people all around the world to use a product for free. And if you're trying to connect the whole world, that's pretty important. So we respectfully disagree. Okay, what about you? Same, I mean, I think that the thing that, that I wish we could spend more time on is the substance of these issues. Like, because there's, there's you know, times when you can get nice quippy sound bites and sort of kick someone when it's popular and they're down. Um, and that's us right now, um, and I get it. And we, we, in many ways, deserve it. He so, did go on and um, a very cogent <laughs> discussion about it, but go ahead. But, but I think that there, you know, there's, there's lots of questions on trade-offs on, so you know, how, do you, how do you build a product that the whole world can use? Like, what are the different business models that work? Can every consumer afford a $10 a month subscription or a $700 device? Right. You know, and for billions of people around the world, like, no, not yet. 
So, um, so I think that there are trade-offs therein in all of these things. And I think as an engineer, what frustrates me is, is you know, there, there are deep issues in a lot of these things and mistakes that we've made and things that I really wish we had done differently. But, but in many cases, you, you face these really hard trade-offs, which is you can have more of something and then you're gonna have less of something else. I can make you more secure. That may, you know, t we're gonna make some mistakes and take down some things that, that we shouldn't have taken down. Are you guys that, that thinking is a about a, an alternate Facebook that's ad-free and or paid? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Are you working on a paid product? We've looked at subscriptions and we'll continue to look at them, but we're committed to continuing to provide a free service because it's core to the mission of what we do. But how far are you along on a paid service? We're looking, we've always looked, but really the heart of the product is a free service. And again, we think that's really important. Yeah, I'll try you. How far are you along on a paid service? <laughs> I don't like that answer. I'm not trying to be one of the people that's fired over all of this tonight. <laughs> well, no one's getting fired, apparently. <laughs> I, wanna, I wanna ask about it. That is not Good. what we said. <laughs> hey, it's Peter again. I'm back at Code. You are still listening to this podcast. Thank you. Um, here's a message from a sponsor who brings this podcast to you for free. Today's show was brought to you by ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN lets you privately and securely surf the internet at really fast speeds without being tracked by anyone. This may be newly relevant to you. ExpressVPN encrypts your traffic and personal data while hiding your IP address. That means hackers, governments, and internet service providers cannot see what you're doing online. Installing ExpressVPN on all of your devices is as simple as downloading an app. It takes a few clicks to install on your desktop, laptop, smartphone, or tablet. For less than $7 per month, you can safely surf public Wi-Fi hotspots in Starbucks, hotels, and airports without having to worry about having your personal data stolen. Take back your internet privacy today, and to find out how you can get three months free, go to expressvpn.com slash media. Here's how we spell that, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash media for three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash media. Don't put it off. Protect your internet and data with ExpressVPN today. If you like Recode Media, we have even more shows we think you'll like. Here is one of them. Stephen Godfrey from SB Nation is going to tell you all about it. Hello, listeners. This is Stephen Godfrey, writer for SB Nation and co-host of Podcast Ain't Played Nobody. I've spent the last five years exploring an explosive NCAA scandal that dragged down one NFL hopeful, a seven-figure salaried coach, and a bagman. Now you can see the results of my investigation in a four-part docu-series called Foul Play paid in Mississippi. Stream it now on Go90. Uh, you guys do sell some stuff. Um, everyone in the audience has an Oculus Go. It's 200 bucks, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, explain again why, why you're cool. in the hardware business, and that's it's not your first hardware they're product. Really, they're really, yeah, you like it. They're super sorry about the Russians, so everybody gets an Oculus Go. So, now I'm teasing you, thank you. No, but let's, yes, let's talk thank about you. Why, why are you, you hear what he why? said? Yes, accessible, accessible VR. Can we bring him up on stage? He's yeah, doing a better yeah, yeah. job. He likes let's it. Talk about VR. This yeah. is like why are you, first of all, I want to ask two questions. One, yeah. why are you making your own hardware and selling it? And two, why are you in VR? Again, Tim Cook says you should be in AR, not VR. <laughs> Okay, great questions. Well, we'll do the first one first, which is, if you see the Oculus Go, it's a $199 product that you pull out of your bag and you put on your head and you're in VR. No headphones, it's got built-in speakers. Yep. Um, it's at a price point that many people can actually afford. Um, doesn't require a PC or your phone to dock it or anything else like that. There's a tremendous amount of engineering that goes into making that product sellable at that price. I know when we set the target, the team was like, you can't do it. 
right? And so the only way we know how to do that is by doing all the work ourselves so that we can make the right trade-offs needed to sell this product and build the ecosystem around it. Towards the bigger question of like, hey, why VR at all? You know, it's the only technology I can think of that's gonna build the closest thing we have to a, to a, to a teleporter or transporter from Star Trek, which is, you know, I wanna be somewhere else or with someone else very far away, and I can't afford or don't have the time to take the long flight to get there. And VR, you know, there's, there's an app that's coming out that will take you to the Natural History Museum in London. You can actually pick up specimens from the drawer that are so sensitive, the scientists themselves can't touch them because they'll break them. They're fossilized. You can, you know, make them different sizes. You can see what it's like to see a pterodactyl in flight, right? And that's a, an experience that we can bring to hundreds of millions or billions of people and children all over the world through VR. And you think I don't this, know you think this is a mass product because it has not taken off yet. You think that's just a function of expense and, and difficulty in, in getting this stuff up? I think you know this is an early early market, an early product, and so we're we're pushing the market forward here. I think as you know, someone in the audience here said is this device is the first one that didn't involve a bunch of asterisks on the end, which is like then do this, then do this, and by that you're like I'm done. I got something else to do. This is just put it on. You are in Jurassic World looking at dinosaurs. You're in the Natural History Museum. You're seeing a you know NBA game you know courtside. Right? These are things that you can't scale out via any other technology. In, it's in a different world. experience for you guys, right? To like get in early on a market and, and to buy, to spend a lot of money on a company that, where the market doesn't exist, as opposed to WhatsApp, Instagram, you built these things. They were widely used by yeah. lots and lots of people. You, you I mean, made remember, a big early bet. I, I helped with onboarding of Instagram and it was 10 million users when, when we bought it. It's <laughs> grown quite a bit since then. So, yeah. so it was a good um, buy. Um, I think that, but, but you're right. I think it's a new market. There's a lot of new technology. As, as amazing as the go is, we have multi-years of sort of R&D in the labs that we're ready to bring to next subsequent products that can kind of take this even further. And so, you know, when you look at a space and you say, if I can build the product, I know people will love it. And then you ask the question, well, can we build it? I, I'm pretty sure we can in VR. When you go to AR, everyone's like, yeah, it'd be amazing to have these super awesome glasses that give me this full 3D world. And then you actually go and you look at the physics of it and battery life and all the rest of it and say, there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't exist in the world yet that we need to go invent to make that happen. So we're working on that too, but I don't think that's coming to market in, in 2019. And Cheryl, was that a reaction? I mean, you all tried the phone and you others succeeded at Google and Apple particularly. Did you, is it a reaction to having to be in the hardware market or do you ever imagine Facebook going back into phones? I don't think we're talking about going back into phones. I think this is an exciting new area. It's possibly a new platform. It's a very, can be a very social experience and yeah. we're excited about it. All right, last question, then we'll get to it. How do you think this has affected your business for the long term this past year? And, and you're not as public as, she, as you are, Cheryl. How has it affected your image? I don't think any of our individual images are the point. The point is the responsibility we bear for the, for the platform and protecting people going forward. You know, in terms of the business, we don't make decisions for the short run. We don't have to, and we shouldn't. I don't think any company should have to. But we have founder control and protections in place, and we're very clear that we're going to make the investments we need to make. I don't think there's a trade-off between the business over any reasonable time frame. Has it been affected frame. to have You're the one that interfaces with advertisers the most. Yeah, we've had a handful of advertisers pull. Some have already come back. I don't think it's affected our short-term business. What about but user behavior or engagement? You measure how they feel all, about it? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've looked. There's certainly an impact, but I don't think it's you know, detrimental right now to the current business, but it matters. And we're investing because we want to do the right thing. We've always wanted to do the right thing. I think we were very taken with the social experiences, and now we're very taken 
with the need to provide safety, security, integrity on our platform. We also, again, approach this understanding that this is going to be an arms race. This is going to be an arms race. We're going to do something. Someone else is going to do something. We're going to have to do better. And there are risks ahead of us we have not yet seen. And so we want to make sure we're working closely with other companies, working closely with government, closely with civil society around the world, so that we deeply understand what's happening on our platform. We also really want to protect the good. I mentioned this. I was in Houston. I met this guy. He owned a taco store. When Hurricane Harvey happened, he had lots of food but no ability to, to bring it to anyone. He met a guy on Facebook who owned a taco truck. They were competitors. They didn't know each other. He put his food in the truck. And they used Facebook to see where people are checking in and drove around feeding them. That doesn't mean that every day on Facebook something happens, and I don't mean that to be Pollyannish, but it matters. And we care. We care about preventing that. Now, those people were all able to be fed because they had shared publicly on Facebook where they are. And so people have to trust us that they can share not just in an emergency, but in a daily place during an election, during a difficult time for them personally or a difficult time for our country. People have to trust us. And so the responsibility we take to earn people's trust and take real action to prevent the harm while protecting the good, we're about as serious as we know how to be about. I'm going to ask this one more time. How has it affected you all? I know it's not about you personally, but you know, Evan just talked about the difficulty of doing Wall Street stuff. I want you each to say, if you can, if you have human emotions. Uh, no, I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you. I'm, I'm programmed with human emotions. No, I'm Cara. trying to get you to say it. Like, what, have you read what, my books? Yes, I have. Yes, I'm, yes yeah. What, how has it you affected you? You don't get to you? say that to what me. What has it changed? I know that. I know. She I'm trying to get, what has it affected, how has it affected you as okay. an executive? How I, about as an executive, not as a... I am programmed with human emotions. <laughs> um, the, it's a very advanced subsystem. So, look. You've worked together here, forever. Here's, here, here, Something broke here. Look, it's never fun to, we all read the news every day and see everyone, you know, mad at us and upset at us and hating on us. And that's, as an individual, that's not fun. Um, but I don't think anyone, like, I don't think we deserve any sympathy, right? Because our job is to build this platform in a way that, that makes sense. And, you know, the fact that there are some real issues there makes it harder because, you know, it's not just BS you can, you can wave away, but say, like, man, like, terrible stuff happens on the platform all the time. And that's the stuff that really gets you down, is this awful thing happened. My gosh, what are all the things I wish we could have done to fix it? What are all the things we're going to do now? And, and that is, it's sort of this, it's not fun to be in, but it's in really important work. And so I don't know if that helps. It's, yeah, and you? Yeah. It's hard, but it should be. I mean, it's hard because... So what did you learn as an executive? I learned that we needed to invest more in safety and security. I learned that we needed to try to find the new threat. And I sit here feeling pretty confident that we're doing a much better job than we were before on the threats we know of today and feeling a lot of you know, need to figure out what the next threats are and knowing that, that we won't do it alone and knowing that we need to work in a much more transparent and open way because I think that's the only way we'll be able to find the next threat. All right. But I take that get, really seriously. Did you get the answer you want? I think I did, yes. Okay, I knew we, can we open feelings. up to the audience? You know what I'm saying. So uh, I'm Don Graham of Graham Holdings. I want to identify myself as for a long time and always a friend of Facebook, but for years not an insider. I don't know what's going on inside. You were on the board. Let's I was up to three years ago, Kara. Yeah. Still. So I want to uh, say this is not the greatest compliment you'll ever have, that the Kara Peter questioning here is a much better version of the conversation that the senators and Mark had in Washington. We're going to run. That's run. not, you'll, you'll get better compliments yeah. in your life. But 
there's one thing that's happened since that conversation, and that's that Facebook has actually announced to us users a series of what sound like very difficult changes that you've made on the platform. And I wish that since you've recapitulated the conversation with Mark, I wish Shrep and Cheryl would summarize the changes you've made and also tell this audience, some of whom I think are on Facebook, about product changes that you're planning to make in the next few months to address the questions that Kara and Peter so have let's asked. Let's do the news part. Clear. Tell, us, news what, part, tell yeah. us what's coming. What's what coming? Announced. In clear history. <laughs> New news, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Uh, still trying to get me fired tonight? Uh, <laughs> so, um, you're not getting fired. The, it's a, thank you, Don. It's a, it's a great question. Um, so there's initiatives in each of these categories, so, it's, so I'll try to just give a, a high level. And I think the fundamental of it, as Cheryl said, is a whole heck of a lot more transparency on, on what's happening and a whole heck of a lot more proactive taking these things down. So when you look at news, it's, it's you know, downranking of clickbaity articles, disrupting economic incentives. So if you're being sent to a site that's basically just this ad farm, you know, we figure that out and, and downrank that. It's using third-party fact-checkers, as you mentioned, in all 50 states, you know, showing up for, for local elections. It's about this article, so you can get more information on the provenance of the article. Lots of things to help you know, consumers better understand exactly what's happening in, in the news. That's just you know, a small set of things overall in news. In the broader platform, you know, there's been a number of places where we just looked at every nook and cranny of the platform and figured out where can we either just completely deprecate APIs or require more review um, in all cases so that we're reviewing the applications not just for what they do, but making sure that there's sort of minimal use of data in all regards. Um, we put a notice in front of everyone on Facebook about what apps they've used. So you can go in and see what apps you've used, delete them if you don't want. If you haven't used an app in 90 days, we'll auto disconnect it from your account so it can't, you know, you use an app and then three months later it pulls more data. That's just stopped. That's broken. You know, again, I can, we've, we put right, privacy new. controls What's in front of everyone. Stuff? New. That's all stuff we launched in the last like two months. All right, new. Clear history. New. We're not going to get new. Clear history is a thing that we announced but haven't yet shipped, right? Which is if I want to disconnect all Facebook data from my Facebook account, you know, like kind of clearing my history in my browser or clearing my cookies. Can I, can I extract that. my information from Facebook if I'm not a Facebook user? Can I go to you and say, what do you know about me? And by the way, can I have that data back? The, the challenge is we don't have a personally profile for you on Facebook. So we don't actually even know how to identify you as that data. Are you guys you thinking this. about how to solve that? Well, well again, in, in many cases, you have cookie data from a, from a device or from a browser, but I don't know which person this is associated with. And so it's, it's pretty hard to get that data back for, for an individual. Um, but there's, you know, we can, I don't know if that fully answers the questions or anything else. Yeah, well, clear, clear history. We're taking the GDPR settings and controls. They're out in Europe, obviously, but they'll be coming to the rest of the world in the next number of months. So across, along the way, things around data, things around news, things around elections, things around fake accounts and content. Sam, don't ask them to disclose new product stuff. Hi, Sam from Comcast. Sam Schwartz from Comcast. Um, we talked a lot about transparency, especially around the source of ads, Russian bots, those kinds of things. But I'm, I'm really confused about the, the newsfeed algorithm itself right on Facebook and transparency around that. Um, I, I see all kinds of stories on mine. I never know why, why they're ranked in the order that they are. And um, you know, studies show that that newsfeed has the power to influence the moods of billions of people. How do we grade you on that awesome responsibility to, as a for-profit company, I would assume some of that's done for my benefit and some of it's done for yours. How do we grade your uh, curation of the, of the newsfeed? It's a, it's a great question. I mean, one of the things that uh, when you look at 
you know, first of all, the, the content of your feed is dominated by who you friend and what pages you like. So the easiest way to adjust the you know, content of your newsfeed is to adjust that. Then on a story basis, you were introducing more and more controls to, to allow you to sort of mute a particular you know, person, to unfollow them so you can still be friends, but maybe their stuff doesn't show up in feed. In ads, for example, there's a really useful control that says, why am I seeing this ad? That gives you pretty great detailed information on exactly why this ad was, was shown to you. So I think in, in every case, what we're trying to do is give you very granular inline controls when you're looking at it, it's like, why did I get this story? We should help you answer that question on the spot, which is what we found is, is sort of most effective to answer these sorts of things. And in terms of hiring people, Cheryl, you talked about this, this crowdsourcing of who, what are news sources. Where is that? The idea that you would have your community rank sources. So we've done a lot in news, right? Probably the most important thing we've done with news, which has taken down distribution across the board for, new, for news news partners and news publishers, is that we've really taken very strong action on clickbait, on sensationalism, and then we did meaningful social interactions, really getting back to the heart of what Facebook was, which was really a place to connect with family and friends. We heard from people that they wanted more friends and family, less video, less public content, less news. So those signals got taken into account. We also really care about psychological well-being. And so we started looking at this, and we're going to continue to look at this. This research is ongoing. And we found that when people are interacting with content where they're actively engaged, friends, family, they like, they comment, they share, that's very positive, but it's not as positive when you're a passive consumer. <coughs> so that also meant the signals went that we had more friends and family, less news. Then within news, we want news that's trusted, that's real accurate information, and we also really care about local. And this is hard. There's no perfect way to do this. But what we did on Trusted is we went out to the community at large and we asked people to identify news sources they were familiar with, not that they read, but they were familiar with. Because if you hadn't heard of them, it's not fair to rank them, and then do you trust? That was one signal that was used to increase distribution for some news sources and decrease distribution for others, and really hit, I think, some of the more sensational sources. We're also prioritizing informative, again, working hard with third-party fact-checkers to mark and really dramatically decrease the distribution of fake news, and also prioritize local. We've announced that we're gonna be supporting local news. We are gonna make sure that people see local news and hopefully accurate local news in their news. Someone's gotta we think it's important. make that local news and someone's gotta figure out a business model that mm -hmm. makes that local news possible. And that's, I mean, you guys are playing around the edges for that, but it seems like if you just wanted to cut people a check, that would help a lot of local newsrooms survive. Well, we're thinking about what we do in local news and considering things. Okay, real quick. On Cambridge Analytica, uh, Ina with Axios, on Cambridge Analytica, I get in 2015, they certified, they deleted it, and you thought they deleted it. The question I haven't heard a clear answer to is, when the Trump campaign, you had people working within it, when they suddenly had all this data on voters, how was no one either higher up at Facebook or working with the campaign suspicious of where did they get that data? Yeah. They, they didn't have any data that we could have identified as ours. To this day, we still don't actually know what data the Cambridge Analytica had. We are trying to do an audit. The British government came in and put our audit on hold so they could do theirs. But we did not see data that we thought was from Facebook. Otherwise, we would have done that. Did you see a suspicious amount of data that they knew more about voters? or that, no, Not really. Not really. Um, in Sri Lanka, the government recently had to shut down Facebook because of news story or fake news uh, that led to violence. And so I was just wondering, practically, 
on the ground in international locations? What are you doing in order to combat those sorts of situations? Yeah, um, what's, you know, there's been issues in Sri Lanka and Myanmar and others, and it's, you know, I talked earlier, this is the worst thing to see is, is when people sort of weaponize this platform and it causes real world harm. It's, it's, it's um, you know, the, the challenge here is getting, as you say, people on the ground in the country who understand the landscape, the cultural landscape, the nuances of the language, the NGOs to work with, uh, the, the folks to work with there to help understand where the issues are and, and where we need to intervene. And so that's been our focus is to, is to literally just get more people on the ground in each of these countries who can focus on that and then have product teams you know, in the company who when they get feedback about changes we need to make there, um, who, can, who can deal with that. We're also looking at technological solutions. Um, for a lot of the AI tools that we've built, you know, they require large amounts of um, training data uh, for those familiar, and you know that training data is readily available in in the bigger languages. But in languages like Burmese, they're just it's it's not as good. And so it's actually one of the core focuses of our lab is to figure out how to take you know a classifier in one language like English and transmute it over to a, a language with very little data like Burmese, so we can immediately deploy you know some of the technology we've built you know for other languages. There we're kind of doing all these paths in parallel because we, we want to solve this as quickly as we can. All right, last very last question for me. Do you feel like your company does understand the responsibility you have now? Do you think that has obviously, Mark, you, does your whole management team feel that? I think we feel it really deeply. I think we're making huge investments, really huge investments. They'll hit our profitability. We think those are the right things to do. And I think we know it's an arms race, that we sit here knowing what today's problems are, feeling more responsibility for the future, and knowing we need to protect people who are using our platform. I mean, as I said earlier, it's the biggest cultural shift I've seen in the company in the whole time I've been there, by a pretty wide margin. All right, thank you so much, you. both of you. Thank you, Cheryl. 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 Thank you. Thanks again to Cheryl Sandberg and Mike Treffer for joining Kara and me on stage at Code. Thanks to you guys for listening to this interview from the Code Conference. There are many more of these coming your way, both on my feed over at Kara's show, Recode Decode. You're probably subscribing to that one already. If you haven't, go over and listen to Kara. Kara needs more exposure. Um, before we go, one more time, if you like this show, tell someone about it. You know how to do that because you're smart. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those ads to you so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie, who edits this show. Thanks, my producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. Eric, I'm looking deeply into your eyes right now, staring at you across from the Terranea Resort. Thank you, Eric. You're great. This is Recode Media. I'm back soon. See you then. Big news for you guys. Vox Media has an exciting new project they're working on with Netflix. You can go watch it on Netflix now. Here's Joe Posner and Claire Gordon to tell you all about it. Hi, Recode Media. Vox just launched a new show on Netflix. It's called Explained, and you can find it on Netflix right now. It's for people like you, people who are curious about the world around them. And here's our promise. If you give us 15 minutes of your time, or sometimes 20, sometimes we can stick to the 15-minute limit. So 15 to 20 minutes of your time will take you from being just curious about a big, important topic to actually understanding it. 
Our first few episodes explore things like why is monogamy so important around the world? What happens when we can actually edit our DNA and take control of our own evolution? Why is the racial wealth gap in America still growing? You'll see it's Vox to its core. It's a bigger and more ambitious yes, but still looking and feeling and sounding like us. And we'll hopefully give you the context and reporting and research that actually makes these super, super satisfying. I think the most satisfying videos we've ever made. So go to Netflix and check it out. You can search for it. You can search for Vox or you can just go to Netflix.com slash explained. 